Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Las Musas podcast. My name is Johnny Garzavia, and I'm the author of 1500 Miles from the Sun. Today, I'm joined by fellow Musas Raquel Marie, Ana Siqueira, and Vanessa Torres. And on today's episode of Ask a Musa, we'll be answering your questions about work-life balance, finding a critique group, and pay fairness as marginalized authors. Uh, Raquel, do you mind starting us off by introducing yourself and telling us a little about, about your book? No, of course. Hi, I'm Raquel Marie. I'm the author of the YA contemporary coming out of age story, Ophelia After All, which is about 17-year-old Ophelia Rojas, who begins to question her sexuality and sense of self when she starts to fall for one of her female classmates in the weeks leading up to her senior prom and high school graduation. Perfect. Um, Ana? Hi, my name is Ana Siqueira. I write picture books. So my uh, debut picture book was called Bella's Recipe for Success. And it's about a girl who wants to find out what she's good at, but she kind of quit on everything before she barely tries until she figure out, figures out that it's okay to make mistakes and to try again. And the book that is coming out this year is called If Your Babysitter is a Bruja. And the title says everything. The girl does imagine her babysitter being a bruja and will try a lot of different tricks to get rid of the bruja. And Vanessa? Hi, everyone. I'm Vanessa Torres, and my YA debut came out on 2-22-22, and it's titled The Turning Point. So it's been almost a month, so very exciting time. And it follows Rosa Dominguez, a ballet dancer in 1983 Minneapolis. She's very Prince-obsessed, and she's also navigating some complex family expectations after they under, undergone some change and trauma. And she also has a new love, Nikki, who looks better in his point shoes than she does. And <laughs> she also is, she's faced with a choice. She has the chance to dance for Prince and it means turning her back on her legacy and becoming a prima ballerina. And again, my name is Johnny Garzavia. I am the author of the contemporary YA 1500 Miles from the Sun about a Corpus Christi, Texas high school senior who accidentally comes out as gay on Twitter after getting, um, after having a little bit too much fun at a party. Um, and the upcoming 2023 YA, Ander and Santi were here about a non-binary muralist who falls for the newest waiter at their family's taqueria. And if you've been listening to the podcast so far this year, you know that we've revamped our Ask a Musa series to help broaden the conversations we're bringing y'all. So in addition to listener questions, we're going to do some shout outs to books we're reading and get into some publishing book world related cheese So before we get into listener questions, I'd love to know what all of y'all are reading right now. And we can just go in like the same order. Yeah, I am currently reading an arc of This Is Why They Hate Us by Erin Esteves, which comes out later this year. I'm very excited. It's about a bi Chicano teenage boy living in LA, exploring love, identity, sexuality. Um, I'm very, very excited to read it and get to talk about it once I finished it. Okay, well, I just, I read already A Friend Divided by Ernesto Cisnero. Mm. I love, I love that book. It's really like, it gives you so much perspective of really what happens to a kid with uh, that um deportation the mom gets deported mm -hmm. and he goes on all the emotional arc of this boy uh, trying to deal with that the father and, and the boy stays in the United States so it's a really beautiful book and I'm looking forward to reading his next one falling falling short but because um, 
I read a lot of picture books. There is one picture book that is not by uh, a Latinx, but it's illustrated by Rafael Lopez that I just read and I love it. The Year We Learned to Fly. It's by Jacqueline Woodson, but it's illustrated by Rafael Lopez and uh, it's about um, some American black folk tales and it's really beautiful mm. too. Okay, I just finished reading Angela Velez's um, Lulu and Milagro mm -hmm. Search for Clarity, which was, I mean, five stars. It's incredible. Go get it <laughs> if you haven't read it yet. <laughs> so good. And I'm about to start an arc by Lake and Zaya Kemp, Heartbreak Symphony. And mm. I don't know too much about it. I just know that it is very music centric and which is totally my jam. And so I'm really excited to read it. My daughter actually grabbed it from me when it arrived in the mail and read it before me. And she absolutely loved it. And we write tandem reviews together on Goodreads. So um, and she's 11. So it's super mm -hmm. fun. I write mine first and then I have, I include her little paragraph at the bottom. So look out for that. That's so cute. Um, I, every time I come on this Ask a Musa thing, someone says my, uh, what I was going to say before I do. So instead of this is why they hate us, I am going to say, which is also like, it's really good. Y'all should read it like Raquel said. <laughs> um, I just finished it and now I have started um, Ophelia After All by Raquel <gasps> And Ooh. I mean, like chapter in so far, but like, oh my god, yeah. When they like okay. the the platonic relationships, like the 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 sapphic yearning that immediately happens in chapter one, like I, I I'm gonna be obsessed. I know I am. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's what I'm reading right now. I'm honored. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. I know it is. Um, yeah. So now it's time for listener questions. Our first one. Um, is how do you balance writing and teaching? But I'd like to pose that as just like more broadly, how do you balance writing and working? How do you balance writing and being a student? How do you balance writing and just living and existing in 2022? Um, just, yeah, how, how do you make time to write when, when we have all of these things around us and all these other commitments? Well, I can at least speak to being a student and a writer because I signed with my agent during my last year of college. And so I was on submission while I was also trying to do senior year of college midterms and finals. And I think a lot of it has to do with just time management, planning things out beforehand. If you start to schedule writing time as if it's another class, as if it's a job, I think it helps a lot. And it can be difficult at times because we consider writing more of a passion and a hobby but when you're approaching it in a professional manner it really does help to delegate specific times of day or specific days of the week toward doing it because it just helps with stress relief it helps with managing what's going on and expectations for yourself as far as what you can get done with your current schedule well for me i am a teacher so uh, I teach online, I teach, uh, uh, it's a Florida virtual, it is a full time. Um, but what I try to do, I try to uh, write really early in the morning. I wake up like at six or five thirty six, and I start writing at six and I start working for Florida virtual around 7.30. So I have this an hour, an hour and a half to write. And then when I finish my teaching around four o'clock, that's when I uh, do critiques and all the other things that we have to do, right? Because we have to do mm -hmm. all the critiques and all the reading and all the other things that we have to do besides writing. So that is my life. That's how I balance. And I think I've been pretty good. Like Raquel said, I try to do that as a job. It is my job, at least the weekdays. I have to, to do something related to my writing every day. 
I will say that we were talking about this before we started recording and I agree with Raquel that it's like once you're once you have your agent and you've been published and now you're writing almost like, I guess under contract it's a totally different ball game and so like it's like when I was just writing my book just for me before I signed with my agent I could just write whenever I had time but now I have to it's it is a job and so now I have to mm -hmm. schedule it in my calendar that helps me if it's in my calendar I do have other jobs. I'm a firefighter paramedic. And I also, during the winter, I'm on ski patrol. So I'm up at the mountain several times a month doing that too. So I have to look at my calendar and see where I have openings and I need big blocks of time. I'm not that writer that can just sit down for an hour because sometimes it takes me a while to get inside my own head. And so I need big blocks of time. And then I just tell myself that I'm not going to write once my daughter's home from school because mm. one, that's like almost impossible to do. And two, I don't think it's really fair to her. You know, I try to get all my writing in when she's there. I have an only child. And so I'm like it for her. And uh, if my husband's on shift, he's also a firefighter. He's gone for 24 hours at a time. Um, today it's 36 hours. I won't see him for a day and a half. And so it really is just me. So yeah, I don't write after three o'clock when she comes home from school and I have to be okay with that. <laughs> I, mm -hmm. So that otherwise I'm anxious about it. So yeah, so it's just all in the scheduling. I would, I think, reiterate a lot of that. Um, when I was drafting my second book, I was actually working two jobs. I was, it was about 60 hours a week. Um, and so because of that, I just kind of had to come to terms with the fact that I wasn't going to draft that book as fast as I did the first one. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had to realize that the, it's okay. Like nothing about publishing is a race. And actually it's very much quite the opposite of that. Yeah. And I, I wanted to make sure that I did two things. One was that I had a full day where I had nothing to do as far as day job stuff or writing job stuff. Like I wanted to be a free day to do whatever I wanted to do. And two is that I had a entire half day blocked off um, that was just dedicated to drafting my novel. That was like when I had my work hours for writing um, and that was immovable. Like that was gonna happen regardless. And I, you, you just kind of have to like consider the fact that like the average YA contemporary novel is about 75,000 words. So you can write 1500 words a week and have a novel in a year. And that's only, I think it's only about like four and a half to five pages of Microsoft Word. If you write five pages of Microsoft Word a week, you'll have you'll have a novel in a year. And mm -hmm. that's, that's not so humongous. Like when you think of it like that, it's not like I need to have this huge novel, just like super daunting. Um, and and hopefully it keeps it a little bit more relaxed as far as pace goes. And that helps keep it fun, because if it's not fun, like just don't do it. Um, and I think especially even when it comes to like writing days, if there were days where like, I just really needed a nap or like my brain just refused to turn on, like I shut down Microsoft Word, like it, was, it wasn't gonna happen. It's sometimes just not great to force words out. Um, and like, there are other ways of being productive when it comes to writing than writing down words on Microsoft Word. So um, just like, making sure that you are keeping your own mental health, number one, mm -hmm. and everything else, number two, I think is just like the TLDR version of this whole conversation. Question number two is, how can I find a Latinx critique group? 
I would say social media. I've not been a part of a Latina critique group, but I feel like social media is really the answer for a lot of connecting with the online book community. And that can be anywhere from Twitter to Facebook to finding Slack channels. Um, I think Las Musas for me is like the closest I have to a critique group like that. But um, just sort of seeking things out, checking hashtags for stuff, looking at authors who are Latina and seeing if they've ever tweeted about stuff related to critique groups before um that because there's a lot of people in various stages of publishing that are seeking out that type of support and it's definitely out there if you're able to look for it well for me what i did when i started writing picture books i created my own critique group oh (laughs) so what i did Mm -hmm. i went to um a facebook there is this uh called kid latinx Mm-hmm. a page and in that page I said I want to uh, create my own critique group and I want to create a, a Latinx uh, group and so um, people would start showing swapping and say let's swap manuscript and let's see if we like each other's uh, style not only at the writing because sometimes you're not the best critique partner for for example I'm not good for rhyming books mm-hmm. uh, I wouldn't be able to do that so I created that it's called Las Chicas Latinas and it's really fun because it was in 2000 we created that in 2019 and most of us are now either agent or with book deals we all mm-hmm. grew together but you can also find pretty groups like that we can or you can um I don't know for, for YA and middle grade, but for picture books, you can find them like on Facebook or social media on uh, the, uh, I have a hard t- time saying abbreviations, S-C-B-W-I. And so you can find also, you can ask uh, help from the, your regional team to get a, a critique group. So there are many ways to get a critique group or the best way I think is like just Finding someone, you you say, oh, let's swap manuscripts. And if you like each other's style, then maybe later you swap with somebody else. And then, you know, you end up creating your own group based on your styles. I am the co-coordinator of the Olympia Writers Critique Group. And we have like 100 plus members at this point, um, but we're not exclusive to Latinx writers. But I will say like advertising at your local library is a good thing to do. Um, see if they can put something in their social media, uh, advertising at your local indie. Like they're always, my local indies are always, always game to put up flyers and things like that. So that would be a good way to just like grassroots reach out. Uh, also like the NYC Latina Writers Group, they're huge. They're a big group. I think they have 800 plus members and they are a critique group. So, and you can find them online. Um, also Latinx and publishing. I mean, if you're looking for connections there, that that's a good site to look at and Latinx and Kid Lit. They do a lot of mentorship programs like Las Musas do. Um, and they might have some sort of forum like chat forum or something where you would be able to find other Latinx writers. Uh, so those would be my suggestions, but like the NYC Latina writers group, they've been around for like 14 years. So they're very established and you can easily find them online. Just Google them. I definitely came up, um, as a writer when social media and finding people on social media was like a big thing, um, and really still is. And I would definitely support like trying social media to find people. Um, I, I know that for me, things like hashtag like writer conversations happening was a great way to to find other people who were currently drafting or 
working on projects. Um, a few that I know of like right now are like hashtag write talk and hashtag WOW chat and hashtag writer pals chat. Um, these are just places where you can go join a conversation and talk about what you're working on and interact with people who um, may also be Latina, who may also be working in the same genre as you. Um, there's also people like um, like Miriam on Twitter. I don't I, I don't know her at, and I'm gonna find her at, and I'll put it in the show notes. But like people who just kind of like pose questions to Twitter that are like mm -hmm. and like you can answer them. But you can also go into the quote tweets and see all these other people answering and what like what other people are there. Um, I'm sure there's gonna be a lot of Latina people, a lot of BIPOC people, um, and just finding your group and it may not be like an entire group of people at first. It may just be one person who becomes your critique partner or your beta reader. Um, but there are multiple people out there. You just kind of have to go and let yourself into it and be cool. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that's that would be my advice. Yeah, and is this going to make me sound really out of touch, but is Clubhouse still a thing? Like, or is that just a flash in the pan? But like, that would be, I guess, a way to... I honestly have uh, no idea. I, I mean... I used to go on there every, every now and then, but it's been like a year. I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. Yeah, I don't either. Okay, so we're all out of touch. Yay. <laughs> and for our third question, um, how do you know, or how did you know that you are getting paid fairly as a marginalized first time author? I kind of have a couple of thoughts on this, but I really am interested in hearing what y'all have to say. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, complicated issue because it is hard to have standards in the industry in a way because imprints make a huge difference publishing houses make a big difference genre and age category make a huge mm -hmm. difference um, yeah. and also what stage you're at in publishing things like marketing what is on trend that all influences things so I think it's really important to have an agent that you trust and that can advocate for you properly uh, regardless of how much experience they've had in the industry it's important that they understand those types of things so I really didn't understand what the expectation was when I got my debut deal or my sophomore book deal but my agent is someone who has been in the industry for a while represents a lot of marginalized authors mm -hmm. she's an Asian woman herself and so she was able to help explain to me like here's what is more standard here you know here's a little bit more um, and give me a stronger set of expectations but I think that there's there's a lot of lacking in transparency and publishing about how much people are getting paid for things. So if you have people around you in the industry that can give you insight into what their deals were, because some people's contracts say they're not even allowed to share that stuff publicly. Um, so it, it it's a, a difficult thing to navigate, but I think having people who you can trust and rely on to both advocate for you and tell you honestly about what they've experienced is really important. Yes, I agree with Raquel because uh, when I sold my first uh, debut book, it's a beaming book, it's a smaller publisher, it's not one of the big five. So I believe they offer me what they normally offer everybody, not a different. I don't know if in picture book is that different. I, I'm not sure. I'm mm -hmm. not that prepared to answer the question. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think what Raquel said it, it is true. Like the agent, for example, when I got my second of my my second book coming from Simon and Chester. So of course I got a, a better offer, but my agent still fought for a, a little bit more. So I got an increase of about 25%. So then talking to another friend, 
she she got a, an offer also from a big five, but she got a little bit less because her her agent didn't fight for her to get this little increase. Like, okay, let's raise a little bit. You know, she just accept the first offer. And the first offer that she got was basically the first offer that I got. So yeah, the agent in this case, like the agent will uh, need to help you and know that you he, she can ask or he can ask for a little bit more, you know? So I think that's the main, I think you can do it, but I know that Las Muses was also making a document that we can put some, uh, how much we got for each book, the way we can compare. And there was all of that on Twitter. What was the name of that Twitter movement? Paid oh, me. the publishing. Oh, what publishing paid me. Mm. Yeah, what publishing paid me. So, you know, it's just that we have to keep everything so secret. We cannot say how much we got it for a book and all of that. So that makes things harder, but, I don't know. We kind of have to open up the discussion that people can can say how much they are making, so we can compare better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Because yeah. how do we know if we can't compare? It is kind of a it's a touchy subject. It makes it really hard to gauge. And so I had no idea going into it what I should even expect as a new author. I just I had no idea. So when I mean, I'll go back to the agent thing, like Raquel and Anna mentioned that it was really important to me that I had an agent that had um, a big list of marginalized authors that she was representing. And it was important to me that I had an agent that kept a priority of, you know, getting the best deal when we went to, mm -hmm. to submission. And we, I, I completely trust my agent. I know she knows what she's doing and she has my best interest at heart. And when we went on submission, we turned down a preempt and ultimately it was up to me, but it was definitely guided by my agent. And she was like, I, I believe this book is worth more. I believe we can get more. And of course, mm -hmm. turning down a preempt is scary because when my book did eventually go to auction, it could have sold for less than the preempt, which mm -hmm. is, you know, terrifying. Um, and it didn't, it actually, um, yeah, I mean, it, exceeded my expectations in in that realm which was really great but it was because of my agent because she was the one pushing for it and really believed in the book and believed that it deserved to get what it did and so yeah i mean that is that's the best advice that i can give is find an agent who you trust and really research who they represent already and how they work yeah i think i would first just um force that that your agent is going to be like the 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 key to really getting you the best deal possible um but some things that I did myself was I did like try to research what felt right and um these numbers probably weren't like things that like the authors themselves are making public it was just like what was on google and what I heard on podcasts and um the the number that I had got from that research was that like 50k was my minimum and I went into it like this is going to be the bar if that's not the number we get then I'm going to have some questions and if we get more then great but like that's just kind of like my mentality of like okay like I think this is kind of like an average of what I can expect um but aside from advances I would also just look at who else is at that imprint especially uh, other marginalized authors and consider things like, do you recognize those books? Are these publishers pushing those titles? Because mm -hmm. you want to know that they're gonna put in the work to, to get your book out there. 
you want to make your advance back. Um, and if you want to deep dive even, like you can Twitter search those authors and the words earn out and see if these authors are making back those advances because big advances are great, but you also want to have the confidence that you're going to earn that back with your publisher and mm-hmm. be a presence going forward because as soon as the first book is signed, you're going to have to start thinking about the second book and the third book. And it's important that you set yourself up for success long term. And that doesn't always necessarily mean getting the best advance. It means which publisher is going to help you with longevity. That's true. That's true. Yeah, the marketing is very important. It's something yeah. like how much effort they're going to put on your book or, you know, yeah. get a good it's advance, but then it doesn't sell yeah. Mm. And if it doesn't sell well, it's going to affect all your future sales. Too. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So those are all of our listener questions. We now are going to move on to the publishing cheese portion of the episode. Uh, and today we wanted to talk a little bit about editors in publishing uh, and specifically <laughs> what we're seeing as um, just a, a large number of editors leaving publishing Um, primarily it would seem because of just the lack of support that they're getting on their side, um, especially when it comes to marginalized editors to junior editors. Mm -hmm. Um, And if y'all had any thoughts on that, I would love to hear them. Yeah, I don't know um, if everyone here read the initial post that kind of um, ignited this conversation on Twitter last week, which Mm -hmm. was from the woman who acquired the atlas six by livy blake for tour and just in that initial post one of the comments in it that really stuck with me was that with all these people leaving editing at these stages where they're still learning because it is a um apprenticeship type of career path where you're you're supposed to learn and based on experience it's not a traditional like you have to spend this many years to get this degree and then this step and so people that are trying to learn from the editors with all these years of experience are starting to leave publishing, what is going to happen to books then? Because there aren't going to be people with experience, with expertise, with knowledge of what goes into editing books and creating these really great stories and stories and books in general are going to suffer as a consequence for that because we're not supporting people properly. And that really stuck with me because when we talk about publishing as an industry, it is important to think about things like money and career But the reason that we're all in this field is because of a passion for stories and people often get taken advantage because of that. People work in any sphere of publishing because there's this idea that, oh, well, you love books. You should be willing to work ridiculous hours for super short, uh, low pay. And, but when you boil back down to that passion, it then is like, okay, well, then all the people who are really passionate about books and care about stories this much are going to leave because they're, they can't survive off of this. It's not sustainable. So who is going to fill up those roles then? What is going to happen to storytelling as a consequence? Um, and just the idea that administrative work and editorial work are different things. And there are people who can fill positions to do the administrative work and can take that pay. And then editors can focus on editing books that they shouldn't have all these additional tasks and fields that they're not training for and that are legitimate, difficult responsibilities to hold, but that aren't the career paths that they're trying to go into. 
Yes. Yes. I, I always thought like, how can they do all of that? They already have so much work because they have to work with the contracts. I was talking mm -hmm. to my editor. She said, you know, after you get, we get a book, we are responsible for everything about that book, like the, the editing, the pub, publicity, and then the contract, everything. They have to get involved in everything and not having the support. And I don't know because the publishers have been selling well. So Mm -hmm. How come they don't want to invest more? You know, if your business is doing what you have to invest and what I feel like they are not investing enough on getting the help they need, the support they need, of course, promotions, better salaries, all of that is, is making that so hard and people are leaving. And as Raquel said, with, when the, all of these people leave, we, everybody's going to suffer. The writers, the agents, like, my agent said, my submission list is really crazy now. Because I said, can you submit to that one? I said, no, I know she's going to leave. I said, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, so, so that, it's really hard. Like from some picture books that I submitted, uh, a lot of them didn't reply. I asked her why they didn't reply. They left the, they left the house or they moved to mm -hmm. the different house. So it's getting tougher and tougher it's already a, such a tough market for us to get in and I was getting tougher and tougher with the editors either leaving and I feel really bad about the junior assistant not having the support and the and being recognized as important, mm -hmm. as important because they are important and they are not not all of them of course not all the publishers but in many cases they are not getting that recognition that they are needed, they are important, they should get the support they, they need. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I wish I knew more about the inner workings of publishing. <laughs> like I don't have a firm grasp on it, but I will say that in anything, you can only write on passion for so long. I mean, eventually you got to mm -hmm. eat, yeah. do, you know, <laughs> everything else that's required to live. And a lot of these, you know, people who are editors, not as editors, it's, um, you know, it's publicists, it's the assistants, it's agents, it's the, mm -hmm. it's every position across the board. A lot of them live in the most expensive city in the U.S. And so it's like, not only are they underpaid and overworked, but their living, cost of living is sky high. And if this last couple of years has proven anything, it's that, you know, we can manage with work, with working maybe away from where we where they say we need to live i mean do do they really need to live in new york city or mm -hmm. i mean i don't know if it's required but maybe i don't know i mean it, i wish i had an answer it's like that with in healthcare too i mean just being in healthcare right now with the pandemic it's it's a mess i mean nursing is is a mess basically they are overworked and underpaid and leaving and taking traveling nursing jobs because they get paid more, but they're required to live 50 miles from where they live. So then now you have ERs that are full of nurses who don't live in the area. So it kind of also scatters that family feeling that, that you used to have. And, you know, I don't know, publishing used to feel, I don't know, it felt like kind of like a family, like we're all in this together and it doesn't necessarily feel like that right now. So it's a bit scary. Yeah, those are all really great points. I, I remember reading that um, that Twitter post um, and just seeing how I, um, unworkable this hierarchy is in, mm -hmm. in publishing mm -hmm. um, and this lack of just like seeing talent and 
I, I don't think that it's anything that is going to be um, fruitful in the long term. And so it, it is a little worrisome on our end. It's a, lo it's a lot worrisome on the editorial end and just people who need a livelihood and want to do a job they want to do but can't because of so many factors that are kind of keeping them um, at a certain point that doesn't necessarily lead to any kind of uh, prosperity or even just like basic livelihood dignity. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't really have an answer either because I too am not necessarily super knowledgeable in publishing. I feel like I just kind of Kool-Aid person to my way into this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so like, you I know, love that visual. <laughs> Talking about it with any kind of real knowledge um, is not necessarily something that I can do, but um, you know, I think all of our hearts kind of go out to those people who are just trying to do a job, but uh, they can't, whether it's because they can't afford the city they live in or because um, the way that publishing is structured, it just does not allow them sustainability. Um, and, and hopefully something, something good happens at some point. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I can at least speak to, I know a lot of publishing houses do require editors to live in New York City and during the pandemic, they eased up on that. And a lot of people left, like moved to different states, moved to different cities. And now that they're requiring people to work back in person, they're either requiring people to move back or they're requiring new hires to move there. And it, it does feel sort of pointless or like, did we not learn anything from the pandemic where, yeah, people can yeah. work from home, they can work from wherever. Mm -hmm. And you're either then forcing people to live in worse conditions because they don't have enough pay to live where they're being required to live, or you're then prioritizing people who are socioeconomically privileged enough to afford to live in these areas, and then passing up so much talent and, and so many people who could potentially provide great things into the world of books because they either live in the wrong area or they simply cannot afford to live there. That's something I didn't even think about, Raquel. That's, a, that's such a good point. Yeah, I mean, I, f I think it's not that hard to, like, you know, it, it's pretty clear that, like, when people work a certain job and they only do it because they're the only people that can afford to do it, the best product is never going to come out of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's tragic. It, it's disheartening because I think as writers, we're able to recognize a lot of the things that we struggle with that are on our side of things. Um, and so it's disheartening to see it sort of happening on all ends. And I think, like you said, Anna, where publishing has made skyrocket profits in the past couple of years because so many people have been reading during the pandemic and then to see the people that are actually behind so many of these books are suffering so many writers that are suffering so many editors people in marketing publicity that they are not getting any type of pay increase or you know now they're suffering because of where they have to live and all of these additional work conditions um, it's really disheartening to see that that stuff isn't it's not trickling down in any way obviously <laughs> yeah yeah my my agent periodically reminds me of all the people behind the scenes who are helping me with my book and how they probably never get thanked and so i have this list of you know publicist publicist assistants all of that and i've sent uh -huh. periodically i send out just handwritten thank you cards just mm -hmm. i mean not even for anything big but just once in a while like I don't know, it goes a long way other than an email. I think it's just, you know, thank you for being there yeah. for me or whatever, you know, I mean, I wish I could increase their pay, but <laughs> 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 I don't have that power. 
If you'd like to learn more about Las Musas or our books, please visit our website at lasmusasbooks.com or find us on social media at Las Musas Books and be sure to check out our bookshop page where each purchase of one of our books goes towards supporting independent bookstores. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also sign up for the Las Musas newsletter to have podcast updates, as well as other Musa news, such as release dates, teasers, spotlights, and more delivered straight to your inbox. Thanks for listening.